Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of him who has seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received, heard, keep it, and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will blot out, and I will not, I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Saw that coming. <laughs> One second. All right, try that again. Got the stand sorted out here. Uh, we are going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Well, uh, let's begin with this. In, in 547 BC, long time ago, a battle was fought in the ancient city of Sardis, the same city that we're talking about this morning. Cyrus, the king of Persia at that time, he was attempting to invade the kingdom of Lydia, what is now modern-day Turkey. But the only way to take Lydia was to take the well-fortified city of Sardis. And Sardis, if you've never been to Turkey, if you haven't wandered around there, it's, you should know it's built at the base of uh, the foot of this small mountain. And the inner city, like the citadel of Sardis, is kind of built up the mountain a ways. And it was considered in ancient times to be impregnable because it had a mountain protecting its back. It was, it was very difficult to assail it to get over that. So Cyrus comes along, king of Persia, has this massive army, and he's laying siege to the city, but he cannot get in. It has high walls, it's got a mountain all around it, he can't find a way in. But one of his soldiers had the idea, what if we could scale the slope, uh, kind of adjoining the walls, where the walls kind of go into the mountain, and know that if we can kind of sneak around this corner, uh, the Sardesians, these people, they weren't defending that part of the wall, because they considered it impregnable. And so one night, uh, this Persian soldier, unnamed soldier, along with a number of his comrades, they, they scale this part of the thing that everyone thought was unclimbable. They get into the city, you know, they open the gate, and, and the city falls. The Sardesians had left undefended a part of their city, a part of their wall that they had deemed impossible to attack. They had thought to themselves, no one's ever coming in that way. But then someone did, the Persians did, Cyrus did. And, and the battle was won, the battle was lost because of that decision. So the same city Sardis is in view today, and you're like, why are we talking about military history? It's kind of interesting. I, I, I think there's some really interesting parallels with the spiritual issues in Sardis. Though Jesus has some difficult and some blunt words for them, maybe you notice this is a church without obvious sin. There's no blatant idol worship here. There's no Jezebels. There's no thrones of Satan. Nothing like that. And yet, this church is dying. 
This church is asleep. This church has forgotten some things that never should have been forgotten. What we get a picture of in this text is a church that left a little portion of its walls undefended. Though they were vigilant and careful at many points, in many ways, they kind of thought to themselves, we're never going to be invaded here. And then they were. <laughs> and then they think, this is never a way a church can fall, but yet it can. Now, what is this undefended point? What is this non-obvious yet potentially fatal flaw? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But not just the flaw, also how Jesus intends to address this flaw. So first of all, the fatal flaw. We'll do that right off the top. Second, a way back. Part three, to those who conquer. But as always, Jesus introduces himself to the church. If you look right there in verse 1, uh, it says he calls himself the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you're with us all the way back when we did chapter 1, uh, it's actually the symbolism of these things is actually explained there. The seven spirits is a way of referring to the, to the wholeness of the Holy Spirit, the completeness of the Spirit. Uh, Christians, we believe in, in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. So Jesus doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits kind of all running around doing different things. Just that this seven in, uh, in everywhere in Revelation means completeness. Whereas the seven stars refers to seven angels of seven churches. So here's a question. Why does Jesus introduce himself to the church at Sardis as the one who has the Holy Spirit and the command of angels? What do, what do the Holy Spirit and angels have in common, with, maybe with each other or with the church at Sardis? Well, I think the connection is this. The Holy Spirit and the angels symbolize spiritual power. Right? They, they belong to the heavenly realms. They can do things that appear impossible to all of us mortals. What do the Sardesians need? Well, they're going to need major change. They're going to need significant spiritual power. In some ways, they're going to need a, a miracle. They're going to need resurrection. So even before Jesus gets into their issues, he reminds them, I have everything you need. <laughs> you know, and when the apostle Peter, he picks up on this theme, uh, here is how he says it. He says, God by his power has given Christians everything they need for life and godliness. And by that, he doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you have no problems. Of course, Christians have problems. He reminds Christians, you have access to everything you need. You, you want to change, you want to grow, you want to have a different way. You're not stuck. And Jesus now holds the seven spirits. He holds the spirit. He holds the angels. He has all the power. And he's kind of waiting for his church to respond to him. But let's talk about this fatal flaw. Look at verse 1. I know your works. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? Jesus said this exact same line to one of the other churches. Give you a second. You can guess in your head. And if you guessed Pergamum, you are dead wrong. It's not Pergamum. It was Ephesus. If you guessed Ephesus, you are correct. Jesus told them this exact same thing. I know your works. These Sardesians, they are working hard for God. They are putting in effort. But then very quickly, that's like the only thing he knows, very quickly we get to the flaw. Jesus tells them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. When we talk about what Jesus sees in his church, all the different things he sees, we must remember that he not only sees what we do, but he also sees through what we do to the motivations that are underneath. He knows what a church is known for, but he also knows what a church truly is. And then that's the end of his comments about the fatal flaw. You have a reputation for life, but underneath is death. So it's kind of what I said in the intro. There's no obvious idolatry. No one's kind of sleeping around and calling it freedom. No false teachers leading people astray. No Jezebels. 
Just a church that's resting on its good reputation while it's quietly dying. A church that has a reputation for being alive, but when you get inside, it's just caskets and decaying flowers. Now, we don't know how they got to this point. We don't have the, 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 the downfall chronicled. But there's an interesting thread in these verses I want to point out. It's a bit hard to detect in English, but I think it'll, it'll help us here. The word reputation there in verse 1, it's from this Greek word onoma, which just means reputation or name. But then if you look in verse 4, Jesus talks about there are a few names, there are a few people who have not given in. We'll talk about that later. But it's that same word, uh, onoma. There are a few names. And then finally in verse 5, there are multiple uses of this name as Jesus talks about the rewards to come. Uh, Same word is used over and over again. Onoma, onoma, onoma. Here's what I make of this. The church at Sardis had been named as being vibrant, alive, full of good works. And eventually it seems that their name, their reputation became more important to them than the actual fruit of walking with God. Now, let's play a little game so you can kind of understand what I'm trying to say. We're going to play Would You Rather. You know, Would You Rather? It's like, Would You Rather Have This? Would You Rather That? I'm going to ask you some Would You Rathers. Would you rather be known as a generous person um, or would you rather just be generous? Would you rather be known for being generous or just be generous? Or let's do one for all of us. Would you rather be known as a, would would we rather be known as a friendly and kind church or would we simply rather be friendly and kind? Now, you're going to want to argue, because I want to argue, well, those aren't mutually exclusive. That's like a false dichotomy. Uh, You know, I'd like to have both. Sure, okay, that's fine. Oh, I'd like to be generous and be known for being generous. But what happens when the choices get harder? Would you rather be known for loving your neighbors, even if you don't really love them, or would you rather love your neighbors while other people think you're compromising and a weak Christian? Would you rather be known for being generous, even if you're not generous at all, uh, or would you rather actually be generous while everyone thinks you are stingy? I'll give you a pastor one so you know I'm not just picking on you, I'll pick on myself. Would I rather be known as a great preacher who's actually mediocre, or would I actually rather be a great preacher while having a reputation for being mediocre? Do, do Do you see what I mean? That we can sit here and we can whisper the right answers to each other. I can, I can think the right answers in my mind. But I'm telling you, when push comes to shove, shove, Christians and churches choose the wrong answer. That if and when we have to choose, we would prefer on many occasions to keep our reputation intact, even if it means compromising something essential or substantial. What I, how I read this is the church in Sardis would rather have the reputation for being alive than actually being alive. It's more important to be known for it than to actually be alive. They are named as alive, but they are actually dead. Now, the other way you can think about reputation and name is in terms of history. Sometimes Christians and churches haven't done anything recently, and they justify their current state, their current behavior, by pointing to their track record. It's like, look, I, I know we don't currently love our neighbors, but we did really well in the past. I know I don't currently read my Bible or pray, but I used to do that all the time. And look, before you feel super guilty, I'm not talking about like missing a day or a few days. I'm not talking about new parents who like can barely drive carefully or whatever. I'm just saying that for, for some of us, the glory days of faith, all of our stories were from a long time ago. And maybe even today, it's hard to remember, what did it feel like to be alive in my faith? 
See, the letter to, uh, to the church at Sardis, Jesus is posing some very difficult questions for us. What is a church known for? What is its name? Not the name on the sign, not the name on the bulletin, but what is its life? A church has to keep choosing between reputation or reality. Would we rather love our neighbors or do we just want to be known for loving our neighbors? And this church has chosen reputation over reality. It's not blatant idol worship. It's not wild sexual immorality. They just drifted and drifted and drifted and drifted. And then they woke up one day and they are miles from where they began. Let's talk about part two. If, if, you've, if you've realized, or if we've realized, this is who we are this morning. For some of us, just realizing that is enough to spark a change. Realizing I've drifted a long way from where I want to be is enough. If so, that's great. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't include uh, what Jesus says to them by way of warning. If you just kind of skip past the comments in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, here's what Jesus says. If you will not wake up, then I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. Now this language of a thief coming unexpectedly, uh, it, it, this is a language picked up all over the Old Testament. Second Peter 3, Peter talks about it. Uh, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5. They basically say, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Now when do thieves come? Well, good thieves come whenever you least expect it. You know, when you're sleeping or when you're away from your house or whatever. When you've left your stuff unguarded in some way. And I think we've, we've had a few things stolen. If you've ever had something stolen, you know the kind of shock of it. It happened, I got, like, I wasn't ready. <laughs> you know, uh, you woke up and you went outside and, and your bike was gone or your car had been riffled through or whatever. This, this negative image of a thief coming unexpectedly, that's what Jesus says he will be like to the church at Sardis. He says, I'm, I'm going to arrive and you're not going to be ready. And I'm going to come against you, and everyone will be exposed for what they truly are. See, what Jesus is warning them of, and warning us of, is one day your reputation will not matter. It, it, it won't count for anything. What your friends at church, what your family think about you, it won't matter if people think you are kind or stingy. All that will matter when Jesus arrives very suddenly is what is true. What were you? What was, what was going on underneath? That's what matters. So I would encourage you to take Jesus' warning as, as a bit of a smelling salt for your soul. Because it's to him that you will answer, not to me, not to anyone else. He will see through any reputation we have as a church to what's underneath. Now, what if you realize this morning that this text is kind of talking about you, at least in part? Is this text intended to make you feel bad? Is this text trying to take your nose and, you know, rub it in the dirt? <clears throat> well, no. No. <laughs> As in all the churches we read about, the reason Jesus writes to them is why? So that they'll change. He writes to them so that they'll, they'll open their eyes and ears and listen to them and see him. He writes to them to tell them it isn't too late. And I'm going to beat this drum over and over because for, I think for a long time in many Christian churches, people have gotten the message that depending on what you've done, it may be too late. That you've, you've gone and wrecked yourself. And we've given out this message somehow that you're too sleepy or too weak or something, too something in your faith to be loved by God. And that's just simply not true. I think you could credibly argue that one of the giant like giga themes of the Bible is this four word sentence. You can come home. You can come home. Not because you've earned it, but because Jesus wants you back. 
There's not anything too big or too dark or too damaging that would prevent God from loving you. Jesus writes to the church at Sardis because he doesn't want them to wallow. He wants them to return. And he wants you to return. He wants me. But what you'll notice is that a return from near death is not as straightforward as some other churches. When Ephesus lost its first love, Jesus says, repent, and then, you know, kind of goes on. But here Jesus actually gives four different words, four different instructions for those who are dead or those who are almost dead. He says, wake, strengthen, remember, and keep. And we're going to kind of walk through them briefly. First, he tells them to wake up. Now, often in the Bible, sleep is used as a, a symbol, a metaphor for death, physical and spiritual death, actually. So it's not surprising that Jesus comes to a dead church and says, you got to wake up. You're asleep. And the first step in revitalizing faith is realize, oh, my faith is on life support or dying. We, we do ourselves no favors as a church to pretend we are something we are not. We must awaken to the truth of the situation. Just like the physical city of Sardis, they should have been awake to the fact that like, hey, we're not defending this part of our walls. And if they get in here, you know, we're kind of done. The church too must awaken to the danger it's in. Second, strengthen. If you look down at verse four, even though Jesus calls the church dead, they are not completely dead or at least not dead in all parts. He says there are some names, some people who've not soiled their garments, which means it's a, it's a metaphor. It's not referring to like, you know, getting actual stains on your clothing or whatever. Just means some of you have not gone to sleep. Some, are, 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 are some people are still have a living and active faith. <coughs> Excuse me. And then back in verse two, there is something that remains that's not completely dead. The church at Sardis is sort of like a tree that looks dead. You know, if you're walking in a forest and, and you come across a tree and it's like all the leaves are dropping off and the bark is all dry and cracking and everything's shriveling. But as you look closely at this tree, it's clear that, oh, there's still a few green shoots. Or there's one kind of healthy branch around the back that you didn't really see at first. The tree looks dead, but there are faint signs of life. This is what the church at Sardis is like. And if a church is dying, if one's faith is dying, Jesus says, whatever can be propped up, whatever can be strengthened, whatever you can do right now, just just do it. Don't, Don't waste any time. Don't delay. The reference to their works being incomplete, it's just another call by Jesus to pursue a robust faith. He's just telling them, you haven't arrived, you're not done yet, keep going. If you're running a marathon, you know, still a couple kilometers ahead, keep your legs moving, all that stuff. Whatever faith a church has, strengthen it. Third, he says, remember, remember what you've received and heard. Jesus wants them to recall the teachings of the faith. To reflect back on what the apostles and prophets and teachers have said to them. This language of of things being received and heard, uh, Paul uses this a lot. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the, the biggest one where he summarizes his whole preaching and he says, the things that you've heard and received from me can be summarized this way. Jesus Christ, crucified for sins, raised from the dead. <laughs> that, 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 that's the things you've received and heard from me. So Jesus just wants this church to remember him in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Often when a church begins dying, it's because they've neglected this gospel message. Jesus wants them to remember it. And fourth, he says, keep. Keep what they've received and heard and repent. Now, I find it interesting. Repentance comes at the end of the list, not the beginning. Comes even after obedience. He tells them to obey things and then to repent. Whereas the Ephesian church, which had some similar problems, the command to repent came first, not last. Now, there could be a number of reasons for this, but here's one. 
All of the Christian life is one of repentance. Some guy named Martin Luther once wrote that. And that does not mean that everything you do is evil and needs to be repented of. It just means you will go on repenting till your final breath. You don't arrive at a portion of your life that's free from repentance. Think about this in the context of the church at Sardis. A church that dies is one that refuses to see any need to change their ways. Nah, we're fine. Nothing needs to change. We're good. That's not the kind of church Jesus wants. He wants a church that's going to hold on fiercely to the gospel message. And whenever it finds itself out of accord with that message, they change. Now, have you ever been part of a church that's dead and kind of knows it? A church that realizes that time is short. I don't have much personal experience of this, hasn't been, hasn't been my journey, but I do know a few pastor friends who have gone into almost dead churches to try to help. And if you've been in a church like that, you know what they've told me, that it's exhausting. It's, just so, it's so incredibly hard. Even the people that remain, if they're engaged and want to change, it requires so much effort, and at so many points, it just feels like this impossible task to revitalize a church. And, you know, tongue-in-cheek, my church revitalization friends tell me, if you think church planting is hard, like, you know, church revitalization, like, just multiply it by, you know, some factor. I think that when a church starts down these steps of wake, strengthen, remember, and keep, it's so incredibly easy to get discouraged, to think it's never going to work. And I think that... Uh, as we, as we think of, or, and as we think of people in our lives who have once professed the Christian faith and walked away, we kind of, we kind of despair too. Are they ever going to return? But this is where we return to what Jesus promised in the opening verse. What did he promise? He said, I have the spirit of God and I have the angels of God. And what he's telling dead and dying churches is, I'm ready to help. Jesus wants to see dead churches resurrected. He wants to see spiritually dead people resurrected. Jesus is telling the church at Sardis, I am a specialist in impossible situations. When all is, is dead, when there's no light, he, he's calling out and saying, would you listen to me? Would you invite me back in? You know, I'm not going to name any names, but there are a lot of dead and dying churches in Canada. Right? You know this. More churches close every year than open. Many churches in Canada alive in name only. I think this passage should give us great hope for Canada. I think it should lead us to pray for Canada. Because who has a history of life, a history of being alive but is kind of dead? That kind of sounds like us. Who has a reputation for vitality but inside it's mostly bones? Kind of sounds like us. There are a few who have not soiled their garments. I hope we're among them. But look, we need the wind of the Spirit to blow in Canada. And Jesus calls those who are dead and dying spiritually, just respond to me. I have the spirit and I have the angels. There is a way back. Part three, <clears throat> those who conquer. Jesus promises three things in verse five to those who conquer. White garments, that their name will not be blotted out. Luke corrected himself very well when he read that. And that their, their name will be confessed by the Father or by, by Jesus to the Father. Let's look at each of these just briefly. White garments, that signifies purity, righteousness, you know, like, the, uh, like the, the white dress that a bride would wear. These are given to those who conquer. You know, other parts of Revelation picture God's people um, in the heavenly realms wearing these robes of white. It just symbolizes being free from sin, free from struggle. 
Second, Jesus promises that those who conquer will never have their names blotted out of the book of life. Now, there are a few different books mentioned in Revelation. One is more of like a book of works, uh, and one is more of a book of life. But the people of God, uh, Revelation teaches us, have their names written in the book of life. And Revelation 20 says, at one point, uh, the the book of life is going to be open, and they're going to read the names off, and if your name is found in it, you'll be welcomed into the new heavens and new earth. That's in Revelation 20. So Jesus is promising these saints in Sardis, your name is going to be written in there and no one, no one has an eraser, no one's got white out, no one can kind of scratch it out of place, we will write it in there and it's never going to get blotted out. And third, Jesus also promises that he will confess their name before the Father and the angels. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a kind of reiteration of the book of life. But Jesus is personally guaranteeing, you are going to be my people. I am going to stand in the heavenly realms before my father and before the angels, and I'm going to say your name as a person who belongs to me. Now, let's put these puzzle pieces together. What was the problem in Sardis? What was their fatal flaw? They cared more about their name than what was actually true. They decided, wait, it's better to be known for being good than to actually be good. And if they repent, if they return, what does Jesus promise? He's like, oh, you want a name? You want to be known for something? You want a reputation? I'll give you all of that and more. I'll I'll make you pure. I'll make you good. You'll have a white robe to symbolize it. You want a name? You want to be known for something? I'm going to write your name in a book of life that will guarantee your, your entrance into the new heavens and new earth. Who cares what your neighbors call you? Who cares what you were known for on earth? Your new name will be written in the only place that it matters. You want a reputation? You want people to speak well of you? I will speak your name to the Father so he knows you belong to me. Friends, can't you see that Jesus knows the longings and desires of our hearts? He knows how we are tempted, our weaknesses, and he knows his church at Sardis, and he meets them right where they're at. And he gives them fuel to combat temptation. To a church that's kind of obsessive about their reputation and the glory days, what people think of them. Of course he tells them to repent and to change, but he says, but also I will give you what you're actually looking for if you come to me. What's left for us? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means this message is not just for Sardis, not just for Turkish believers, It's a message for you, it's a message for me, for our church, for Canada and beyond. Are you dead? Are you dying? Do you need resurrection? Then Jesus is calling. Let's pray together.